Welcome to Liminal Theology, a podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome the Reverend Rosie Fairhurst to the Liminal Theology Podcast. Rosie is an Anglican priest working as vicar at St. Augustine and St. Clement Bradford in Bradford, England. She's also an organizational analyst offering organizational analytical skills combined with a spiritual and theological dimension. Rosie has worked as a trainer, researcher, theological educator, pastor, and writer. She is the author of Uncovering Sin, A Gateway to Healing and Calling, published by SPCK in 2012. Most recently, she co-authored Crossing Thresholds, A Practical Theology of Liminality, published by Littleworth Press in 2021. Welcome to the show, Rosie. It's a pleasure to talk with you and to explore your thoughts on liminality, spirituality, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to talk to you today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jonathan. One of the first things I like to do with guests is to explore your background, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, your journey to the priesthood, and as you're exploring your journey, describe how you encountered the monality uh, and how it changed your perspective. Okay, so um, yeah, I uh, was born in Sri Lanka, and uh, made the journey back to the UK with my British parents when I was about three. And at some level, I think that uh, is a liminal experience that I've been kind of searching to get to the bottom of for a very long time. Anyway, my uh, father was an Anglican priest and I grew up um, uh, largely in a UK vicarage. And, I certainly had to go through the experience of find, um, sort of finding, make, in, ensuring that the faith I had was my own and not something secondhand. Although actually, it was uh, it was it was pretty clearly uh, my own from a fairly early stage. Um, I think it was more actually about the um, going. Uh, into ministry myself, where I had to really uh, be clear about it. Um, And as I got older, the possibility of women entering the ordained ministry started to hove into view. When I was at university, I both felt called to urban ministry and a city ministry. And also, I remember writing at college a piece called should priests have beards because the church was just starting to contemplate whether to ordain women or not and I think one of the early church fathers had talked about priests needing to have beards and uh, for for our for the uh, I was at a women's college for the college magazine so it was on my mind then uh, but actually partly for the reasons I've just mentioned about wanting to make sure it was my own decision. I I spent about five years after college um, doing other things, um, some of them connected uh, and um, being part of a local church. And at the end of that, I decided to go forward for ordination training and I was accepted for that. Uh, But I went before the vote had happened. So it was by no means certain that I would be ordained priest um, at the end of that time. And in fact, I was in on a graduate school with the World Council of Churches in Switzerland when the vote happened. And I remember, you know, sharing that moment with um, my friends and colleagues from all different churches around the world who had all sorts of different views about it as well, but um, mainly very positive. And um, so that was, that was uh, in a sense, the 
liminal context of my own becoming a priest, that that wider, huge change was going on and that my uh, first years were very much years when the church and the local church and national was adapting um, to having women in that role. And uh, very powerful things happened during that time. Um, I can remember in my um, first, in my curacy, uh, a woman getting really um, obsessed with me. I mean, not in a nasty way, but it was just that I think it blew her mind to think that a woman could represent a priest when her own experience of being a woman well, she'd been quite downtrodden in different ways. And and there were, I, I witnessed various other versions of that, expressions of that happening in different people's lives at that time. Then uh, towards the end of my curacy, I began an, M well, um, no, quite soon, actually, I began an MTH and I took a course in um, psychology of religion. And um, that was where I discovered both um, Donald Winnicott and object relations theory and where I came across Victor Turner, who invented liminality and, 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 and various of the sort of conceptual things. And I remember delivering my late, typically, um, uh, dissertation. Uh, exploring the subject on and it was um and and then going to take a service it, it and it was just after the day uh princess diana died and 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 thinking my goodness that's a huge liminal experience we've just witnessed and realizing i had a vocabulary for it so so that was really how i came to priesthood and how uh, I came in touch with the concepts of liminality. Thank you, Rosie, for sharing your story. I always find it interesting in how um, people come across liminality and it's very much um, an experiential thing and you describing your journey to the priesthood, priesthood as a woman, and then the, the liminality of both your personal experience and the wider social experience of um, that experience of liminality. It's always really interesting to me. And I, I would like for you to return to this, um, this idea of liminality and how would you describe it? Uh, you talked about yourself as a, as a woman and being ordained, this, this feeling of liminality into the priesthood and then that social experience of the death of Princess Diana. How would you describe this uh, liminal experience? Uh, what are the main features of liminality? Um, how do we typically encounter it? Yeah, so I think, um, first of all, uh, a word, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners will be very familiar with the concept. So um, obviously, there are many ways to talk about it. But I, I'm just going to mention the ones that have been most um, decisive for me in forming my sense of it. So that idea that, that the word coming from the Latin for hearth or threshold, limen, and um, uh, and the the two words that Victor Turner uses about um, the movement between the world of structure, which is the world of everyday life and uh, uh, the different organizations we live in and the way we behave in in those in those structures and systems like human systems as well and the world of uh well whether he calls it anti-structure or community uh, characterized by communitas where we're not working out of our rational minds we're working from a much um more primal emotional and spiritual place and um and that is where profound spiritual experience tends to happen uh, it's outworkings 
often than you find in the world of structure, but the actual experience is often in this place of communitas. When you're a, um, training to be a priest, um, I trained residentially, and in a sense there was a withdrawal from the world um, for those three years um, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and then most um, intensely in the pre-ordination retreat, that sense of this is something that is going to change me forever because uh, this is a role that I will carry for life. And uh, whether you feel priesthood is ontological or not, it's a very profound vocation to have for life, uh, whatever jobs you end up doing within it, whatever, you know, those specific things might be in or outside the church. Um, so, so ordination per se is a liminal experience. And, and, yet, and you might say that monks and nuns are permanent liminals because they permanently live on the margins of society um, uh, outside the structures, which gives their life and, and major on the spiritual experience, which gives their life a very particular quality. So that's, um, and then the other, uh, the other thing to say is that movement, which that ordination is an example of from um, uh, your, so leaving your previous role in society, um, having that time apart and then re-entering in a different role. And whether it's marriage or a, or a funeral or a baptism or uh, many other activities which might be called liminoid uh, because they're not specifically uh, from a spiritual tradition, but uh, recognisably uh, have that pattern. Um, uh, that that is a pattern common to all of those. I mean, some would say that um, a football match is a liminoid experience where people, you know, forget that whether they're a, a doctor or a broadcaster or a or unemployed, uh, and just get on with being fans, and 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 uh, they don't have to think too much. They have to shout quite a lot, and they just get a lot of stuff out of their system, and and you know. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things like that. You could say that the therapist's couch is a sort of liminoid place. But anyway, um, I think for me, it was quite important, this distinction in Victor Turner's assumptions, the, the, the sort of inventor of the term. Uh, he was working initially in cultures with a single um, religious system. So... Uh, the experience of the transcendent was fairly common to all. Of course, we live in a very diverse uh, culture with a lot of people of, of all faiths and none. So the, um, the place of the transcendent becomes a lot harder to describe in the wider culture and in the wider picture. Um, but, but I always thought about it primarily uh, and initially from the point of view of Christian, my Christian spiritual experience. That's why I, I love asking that question about describing and defining liminality because each person describes it differently. differently. Uh, there's always the familiar terms, uh, Victor Turner and uh, crossing thresholds, but it's the experience, the life experiences that really, um, bring that definition into its fullest meaning for, for each person and your connection to your connection of liminality with your journey into the priesthood, I thought was particularly powerful because that is a very clear threshold change between Rosie Fairhurst before the priesthood, then the process of becoming a priest. And then that, uh, process where you are, where you are a priest, and you know there's a, a lot of uh, emotional feelings. You know, I think more so with with journeying into the priesthood than perhaps other Christian ministries. And you 
kind of come through that process with a kind of communitas of your uh, those within the Anglican Church, those who have shared your experience that understand uh, what you have gone through more than anyone else, more than you know, than I could understand or anyone else on the outside looking in. Do you feel that you've fully passed that liminal experience of becoming a priest and, a, and entering a, a new new life experience? Or do you sometimes feel that that liminal experience of being in between, you know, as a priest, you are within the church, but you're also within the wider society. Do you sometimes feel um, on the margins? I know you mentioned, you know, monks and nuns, and I thought that was a really interesting perspective of their consistently being on the margins in a kind of perpetual liminality. Does the priesthood kind of fluctuate between feeling like you're in liminality still, or do you feel more comfortable that you've, you've passed that threshold, you've moved on? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think um, I can speak most from my current experience of being a parish priest in a, uh, you know, a very marginal in worldly terms location, um, inner city Bradford, majority Muslim area, um, a very poor area, and in terms of the hierarchy, you know, uh, at the bottom of the pile, really. And um, I, I think, and I feel very energised by being here. I came here from working in a cathedral and I've worked in uh, a theological college. I've worked in like a well-known church like St Martin in the Fields. But I think I feel... I felt a strong sense of call here after those other experiences. And, and I do feel strongly that marginal places can be prophetic places. And obviously marginal places potentially can be liminal places. And if you like, um, the prophetic is another term for that, that has li liminal connotations. I think that, um, uh, in terms of the journey of being a parish priest, uh, it's it's really having gone through that setting apart to be a priest, then the journey is about rowing to the place where you're 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 seeking to enable the people of God that you're working with and you're reaching and the people that you're reaching out to to take their full place as the as the royal priesthood and and so I think I'm very much on that journey of uh, I feel of of trying to move into a more enabling and empowering and if you like self-facing stage because ultimately my job is to see the church flourish after I go, uh, as well as while I'm here. So, and I think that is true of any, any expression of priesthood potentially, um, although it looked very different in different places. And the, you know, if you're a bishop, then you're, you're much more kind of, within the structures of the church, although in a sense you connect out at a different level. So, so that's there too. Um, does that begin to answer your question? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I'm very interested in, in liminality from the perspective of priesthood and the communities that uh, you serve. Um, you know, a lot of these questions come up, I've been thinking about these things since uh, my last conversation with a friend of yours, Nigel Rooms. Yeah. And he was telling me about um, life in whole city and then uh, the sometimes the marginalized experiences there. And, you know, you were describing uh, the situation in Bradford city as kind of a place on the margins. And I'm wondering what church looks like, within the context is the context that you serve. So as, as a priest, do you feel that um, the people that you serve minister to, are they also caught in liminal experiences? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so that happens in different ways. So we've got uh, one feature is that we, so we have two sets of displaced people. We, the, the, the white working class uh, northern West Yorkshire people who in filled these communities uh, first and who were then uh, then the displaced Mirpuris. So the Mirpuris were from a district called Mirpur in Pakistan. And after partition in 1947, they, uh, their, their district was flooded to create the Mirpur Dam, the second biggest dam in the world, which irrigates the Pakistani side of the border. So they were displaced as a direct result of partition and the end of the British Empire in India and came to Bradford looking for work uh, in the, cheap, in the uh, jobs in the mills that, that the local people didn't want to do anymore because uh, they were poorly paid and it was towards the decline of the, of the wool, um, wool mills here. So, so you've got two sets of people who both feel displaced and both mourn the loss of something um, and, and resent the, pre and potentially resent the, the presence of the other group, you know, and uh, the white flight it's often called and the, and the experiences of racism when people arrived and the, and the different things that go on. And then into that mix, you've also got um, a constant stream of migrants and, and asylum seekers from all parts of the world. So um, some of the most powerful liminal experiences in the church since I've been here have been around the baptism of Iranians who've had extraordinary experiences of God both in Iran before they've never even met a Christian, of Jesus actually, uh, it, before they've ever met a Christian and, and on their journeys here and since they've come here. And um, uh, so that's been quite marked, but but then and 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 people with extraordinary stories, whether they're from Congo or whether you know whatever part of the world they're from, about uh, how they've experienced these perilous journeys, uh, which have and separations from their families, which have lasted for years. That community is often very transient, so we're forever saying just getting to know them and think great they're part of us and then they then they move on so there's a constant um flux in a way but but also uh a sense that sometimes amongst the poor and amongst those people who've had the most kind of parlous experiences there's the strongest sense of god at work um, and then, you know, trying to get the different parts of the communities to, well, own their own stories, do their own mourning and share their stories with each other so that they're understood, um, I think is, is one way of describing the task of ministry here in order to produce something, you know, the aspiration of the church to be a sign of reconciled to humanity and all tribes and nations rather than uh, it, to the very divided city around them. And I think it re probably really speaks to uh, your own liminal experience uh, as a priest. Being a priest 50 years ago, probably the expectation of the people that you would minister to, probably white, middle class, maybe working class, but what you're uh, engaging with, um, you're engaging with people from all different parts of the world, uh, Iranians, Pakistanis, migrant people from, from all across the world, and having to help them own their stories, discover their stories. It seems to be that ministry itself is in a liminal state of the different 
expectations, the people that you encounter. Uh, you use the word flux, which is a word that I, I, I like uh, very much of a continual change within your own community. Uh, I'm probably, uh, it probably makes your job one that is in constant flux as you're continually learning about the place that you're in as one that is not stagnant, but seems to be changing. Well, it's changing, but at the same time, you know, the, the, uh, the most stable parts of the churches are from the long-standing white West Yorkshire uh, people and, and trying to understand, uh, although I am from the North, I don't sound as though I'm from the North and I'm from the wrong side of the Pennines anyway, which is a much more serious offence. Uh, uh, so, so understanding their experience, which seems to have been lost a bit in the process, even though they've not gone anywhere, do you know what I mean, is, is also a key part of it. And in the Anglican context, the other thing is that um, in the Church of England at the moment, most of the energy uh, institutionally seems to be going into uh, resource churches, pioneer churches, um, and the and the parish structure is a bit on the back burner. Uh, and it's partly on the back burner because it's it's in need of reform and it's hard to grasp the nettle of the of the legal and structural changes that need to happen to make it more fit for purpose without losing its essence. But it's it's uh, seems to me there is something really important about parish, about working in a specific context and paying attention to that context. And that actually, although, you know, we have that word parochial about that might make you very blinkered in a place like this, then you're having to pay attention to the world in your local context. I want to actually want to shift gears sure. and talk a little bit about um, liminality within the context of uh, developmental psychology. I know that's something that you write about in Crossing Thresholds, using psychology to help us understand uh, liminality. How do these relate to one another? And, and what do you mean by developmental psychology within the context of liminality? Well, I, I used really... Um, the work of Donald Winnicott, who you would place in the psychodynamic world as a British object relations theorist. He was a child psychiatrist. He was writing mainly between the 50s and the 70s in the 20th century. And uh, absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. Um, he, I came across him uh, when I was uh, doing my MTH. Yeah, so I, I, I was reading him uh, in the uh, psychology of religion and, and immediately thought, well, how his concepts of, for example, transitional space um, were felt very powerful in terms of things like understanding how an icon works when people pray with an icon and how his, he, he, he was a child psychologist and he's, all his work really stems from uh, his understanding of the, the gaze, the gaze between mother and infant and how that between, between that, in the midst of that gaze, is what becomes the transitional space. And that that gaze is absolutely essential to a child's feeling loved, feeling safe, and being able to grow and develop in just about every way. And from the beginnings, when the mother and child, the mother's sort of in love with the infant, and the infant just thinks that they are an ex you know, one person with the, with the mother, a dyad, to the gradual letting go that happens as the, as the infant grows into a baby and a toddler and 
and learns to explore the world and always uh, with reference uh, to mother and and the uh, you know the uh, experience of seeing a toddler in a play group they're looking they're they're happily off playing in the sandpit and they're turning around every once in a while just to check mum's there mother disappears out of the room to make a cup of coffee and the and the child goes ballistic um that's that's the the sort of um uh, at the stage where it's so important to um to know where she is and and where you're also learning to tolerate separation and to internalize the presence of the mother for one's feeling of safety and security so that adds for me a whole other dimension to the way we enter say an icon of uh mary holding jesus it's like we're we're entering into that in intimate relationship and it's actually uh psychologically speaking giving us a very feminine presentation of the divine in in mary and so one of i was also working on feminist theology paper and one of my thoughts was well so it's it's really far more subversive in the artistic tradition than it is in the verbal tradition of Christianity is the presence of the divine feminine. And arguably, the place of Mary in Catholicism, um, you could read as the presence of the divine feminine. One way, you might look at it different ways, how you did that, depending on whether you were a Protestant or a Catholic or a feminist or not, but... but there's a lot in that and and then also just feeling sometimes in my own experiences actually of gazing at icons whether of Jesus or or one of those ones of Mary holding Jesus of of being taken into that intimate loving presence um myself so so there was a sort of um seeing it that way and also at the level of um understanding that out of that transitional place then you you get you get transitional objects so like one way like how the hanky or the teddy bear uh becomes a transitional object so it's a reminder effectively for the child that although they can't see mum the hanky reminds them of the presence of mum or the teddy does. And I'm saying mum in all these cases, I guess it could be, it could be a father who's the primary carer who does these things, but it's highly unusual for them to be that, take on that role. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that in the transitional object is one of the first symbol if you like um, that's produced in the transitional space and that this transitional space grows from becoming um, into the space where cult the cult and and the divine symbols and and the and the wider range of symbols of culture are uh, understood so it's the out of that gaze comes the, the, the most important sort of creative place in our human interactions and imaginations. And, and without, that, without that primary experience, then if, you know, if, if we don't produce a child who can play, we'll never produce an adult who can create. Does that make sense? I wanted to talk about these transitional objects. Are transitional objects things that help us guide the transitional space? Things that we hold on to to navigate that that gaze? How how do how do the transitional objects relate to the transitional space? Okay. Um, it's slightly different. I'd describe it slightly differently from that, but I, I get what you're saying. So um, so I would say that 
So a transitional object for a toddler helps them to navigate the uh, transition from having a mum who's omnipresent and they, they're able to look at for security to um, a stage of growing independence in the world uh, as a child, as a growing child, and then as a teenager, and then as an adult, uh, internalizing that dependence more and more until uh, really they're a fully functioning adult who, uh, well, arguably we never stop needing our parents uh, in one way or another, but, um, but the, but, you know, for the, we, we make a very long journey, a long uh, way along that journey. So then I suppose transitional objects could also be things that help us make objects that help us make other transitions in life. Uh, and um, I've not really thought of it in exactly those terms. So, but I think I, I'm trying to think, well, I suppose, I suppose if you look at the inside of your own home, it's, I, I don't, most homes, mine included, are full of things that remind me of different parts of my life journey that have been significant to me, whether places or people or, um, you know, things that have become important to me. And that is what helps make it a place of security and identity to me. So in a sense, you could argue that homes are transitional objects along the journey of life as well. Thank you for that. I, my question was uh, quite personal. I have, um, uh, my, I have a daughter, a three and a half year old who carries around a little uh, stuffed dog uh, that she calls Pipa and uh, never quite understood the, this, the, the attachment that she has. She's had this stuffed dog for well over a year and he, he, he looks pretty rough. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm hoping he could make it uh, a little longer, um, but it makes sense that perhaps what she has is a is a transitional object that reminds her of uh, security, of uh, comfort, of love, um, especially when uh, I'm not there or her mother's not there. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, my brother, my youngest brother. He had a koala bear um, and it was so loved, this koala bear, that the only bit of fur left on it, uh, it was, a, a, you know, like a teddy koala bear, not a real one. And um, that the, the, the only bit of fur was on one ear and um, he still uh, is widely associated in our family with koala bears. Um, so very similar to Pepper, was it? Yeah, and 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 probably this uh, beloved dog will, at some stage, start to get a bit neglected and left around more, rather than, and then you'll know she's at the next stage of her um, journey towards independence. Which the thought makes me kind of sad, but also recognizing that it, it, there are things we have to let go and. Um, you know, I think as adults, it's important to have these transitional objects. You mentioned uh, your home, uh, the things that we have. And I, I think about my own home and there's no real practical reason to have some of the uh, pictures or objects I've picked up from vacation or um, little knickknacks and things that serve absolutely no purpose other than that continual reminder of um of an experience that i felt joy or love or felt experience within the within the context of uh experience with my wife experience with my child and these things continually connect us to uh a feeling uh perhaps this this transitional space of the gaze uh this is i'm, I'm coming back to this because um i'm when I was doing my uh, MDiv you know, a long time ago, I was very interested in icons. And I, the way that you're describing 
this uh, transitional space and this connection to the the attachment of uh, a child has uh, to um, one's mother uh, really helps me understand the experience of being in, within the presence of a religious object or religious picture of art that it connects not just to a aesthetic sense but also a much deeper sense of feeling of joy of love of a reminder of um, a presence uh, that something conveys a presence of, um, of connectedness, of connectedness. Uh, I mean, yes yeah like even um, so here's one with a with a male figure so the Rembrandt's famous picture of the prodigal returning, um, which is in the Hermitage in Russia, and that Henri Nouon used in his, in one of his books, famously, um, that does it in a very different genre from an icon, but that seems to have a, a similarly profound effect on people, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in a Protestant tradition that we did not have a, a lot of pictures or images. Yeah. Uh, the sanctuary I grew up in was in a, it was a Baptist context across. Uniconic. Yeah. Uniconic as, as uniconic as possible. Um, even, even stained glass was just, you know, no, no real imagery um, cross Bible. And that was it. And that was the feeling like, you know, the other things were, uh, distractions or would mislead you. And I grew up, you know, within that context, but I always felt that there was something missing because, and that, you know, of course that tradition is fine, but for some, I feel like there, there's a sense of connectedness that you just, you were just describing of how a object, how a picture, how even, even if, go to say something like sound music all these things have a way of connecting us um and re invoking a a real relational experience emotional yeah. experience yeah definitely and actually i think you're you're onto something there that the the nonconformist traditions um you know carrying on that reaction to the the uh, iconic as it were at the reformation for them it's much more in the response to the word and in music that you get that so my i had a memorable experience my my mother wanted to go back on her birthday we were in uh cardiganshire caredigian in wales where where her one side of her family came from and to our surprise, she took us to the gravestone of her grandparents. And, and uh, it happened to be at the epicentre of the uh, Welsh revival in Cardiganshire. And, and the one of the uh, Calvinistic Methodist chapels was still there, where a lot um, and you know, there was this classic preaching box with galleries, and and this had been the place though where and it's a bit like Jonathan Edwards in 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 America and the great and the great awakening where there was this fantastic tradition of hymn singing which was where all the emotion was absolutely poured in and where people could do that experience that communitas and also uh there was this um uh yeah openness to the um to the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the charismatic, which, um, which you know, very much takes us into this similar territory, and people have to feel uh, to be in touch with the emotional in order to do that. I mean, there is, of course, another tradition within the Protestant that's very buttoned up and very much all about the word and expository and and suspicious of accessing emotion but there is there are great currents of of that in those different places as well in that tradition aren't there yeah absolutely and you know i'm, I'm thinking 
and as a as a as a Protestant, I I, I think I, I can make this comment and mm. as being on the insider, I think one of the problems with um, especially in the American church, um, American Protestant experience, there's this tendency to leave these things behind as, 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 as the way that my, my daughter will eventually give up her little stuffed dog. And then we move on to maturity and we don't need these things anymore. And that we just need, we can just, um, cognitive, uh, the word, uh, these are the type of things that would truly bring us to the experience of God. But I think throughout adulthood, as we are transitioning through these different liminal experiences, there is a need for different, uh, the physicality of different things, uh, objects of art, of music, of, of ways that help us discover new ways of experiencing God throughout our spiritual journey. And I, I you know, growing up, um, uh, I came to really enjoy looking at icons. And then I became more interested in say other, uh, other expressions of Christian spirituality, whether through um, uh, art or music. I think there is a kind of liminality that goes on with objects and the way we're talking about these transitional objects as something that I think the biggest mistake is to think we don't need anything at all that we can just, um, you know, talk about God in, yeah. in just completely abstract ways. Well, well, it, well, it is. And, and I should say that well, I've, uh, it's uh, important to say I've been using as a slight shorthand the journey to independence of a child. But of course, we don't journey to independence. We journey to interdependence. And in terms of our relationship with God, we're always in a relationship of dependence, uh, even though even on that journey to becoming um, spiritually mature, we're still, in a sense, dependent. So, um I think all these things, whether you know whether they are symbols, as an icon is, um, or more like a transitional object, are reminders of that. And I think that the whole concept of liminality, predicated on, you know, not something you do in isolation, but in community, as Turner originally talks about it, um, is. Um, you know, reflects that interdependence both upon one another and God. And and the other thing that strikes me from what you say is that, yeah, the, the need for objects is another reminder of why the incarnation is so important, that, we, that God uh, blesses and enters the material world. It's not something to be left behind uh, whether you're a gnostic or a <laughs> or a you know extremely uh uh button down protestant i absolutely love what you said um ours is not a journey toward independence but a journey toward interdependence and i think that is especially within an, for me thinking of it within a, an american context everything is about independence is everything is about the individual um not being dependent on anyone else even to almost you know uh, it not being dependent on anyone else we have this fierce independent mindset and interdependence is something i think that a lot of christians struggle with um interdependence with god as our source of life as our source of being and interdependence also of community of communitas of being able to see the others around us who have been through who are going through uh the the liminal journey the spiritual journey uh and that this is uh, liminality is not just something that we experience individually and come out through as a, as independently but as one of a journey toward that interdependence. And I really feel that, you know, for 
for churches, for, for Christians, for any type of spiritual person, um, that distinction is is so crucial between independence and interdependence. Yeah, it it is, and and that's really interesting because yeah, obviously it's such a key word for Americans, and it makes me wonder what an American uh, theology of interdependence might look like. You know, what a, I think you've got some rich resources to draw on. For example. You know, how can you think of the United States in terms of interdependence? How can you think of the journey of the Pilgrim Fathers in terms of a, you know, that was the journey of a people together? And and there's lots in there that could be pulled out to retrieve that and lots that the church might think about how it might offer a journey and help a journey towards that sense of interdependence. That's definitely a lot for me to think about. Um, that's something I think after this conversation, I'm going to think about. Um, I'm going to think about that very uh, intensely because the but between all levels of society, and I don't think not just the United States, but also uh, with all within the Western context as well, um, there is this feeling of we celebrate independence, but we don't necessarily celebrate interdependence uh there is this still i think kind of mindset of interdependence suggesting something of weakness of not of not strength and independence is to be independent is to be uh full of strength and um and so i think uh sometimes the christian mindset um both in the united states especially and in also um UK probably in Europe. Yeah. There is this sense of um Christians co-opting these ideas of independence and not thinking so much about the interdependent network, the interdependent way of community that Christianity I think is supposed to implement. We are not we're not just independent Christians running around doing our own thing. Uh we are interdependent people living together should be forming community, forming community toss uh, together. And uh, well, well, yeah, and, and in the British, in the English tradition, I think it's that there's that word and the British tradition, that word Commonwealth is quite loaded because that's been an attempt. You know, you've got Oliver Cromwell and the Civil War and the establishment of a Commonwealth for a brief period. Um, when we didn't have a monarchy and then you've got the um the commonwealth which has been the attempt to make the former empire more have a sense of interdependence and of course there's a whole richness of other language about what commonwealth really means that we could explore so you've got me thinking about that from this side of the pond but I'm you know, just thinking about what's going on between Ukraine in the Ukraine and Russia and America's part and NATO's part and the rest of Europe's part, how badly we need to keep that interdependence word alive in all the different relationships involved. Absolutely. Uh, That conflict uh, is a looming shadow over a lot of different things. And I do worry very much that we are growing more independent, less interdependent, um, even, even within the news, the way we think about things. Interdependence is seen as, as a, um, as kind of a, a, a weakness. And uh, I do worry about um, there's a great worry about having a lot of independent minds within high levels of government and high levels of, uh, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and of course the whole language of ecology, uh, is one that reminds us of our interdependence and interconnectedness at the deepest levels. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that, that up as well. I think it, it is also a interdependence, not with one another, but also I think with, um, with nature, with earth, um, 
and the systems that we are a part of. Um, so many rich things to talk about here. I, yeah. I do want to, uh, as we approach the uh, end of our conversation, I do want to um, ask you about um, for someone interested in liminality, um, where would you begin in terms of reading, studying liminality to learn more about it? Well, um, well, in my own journey, uh, I found it's quite old now, but I still think it bears a read in terms of, especially some of the things we were talking about earlier about um, priesthood as a liminal thing. Urban T. Holmes III, it's a wonderfully American name. He was a practical theologian and um, he wrote a book about priesthood that 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 um, helped me make an awful lot of connections. Uh, so although that's relatively old, I found that deeply inspiring. Um, I would say, um, I'd go back and read you Victor Turner. <laughs> Obviously, Crossing Thresholds would be a, a major help. And also um, uh, Timothy's other book on liminal reality. Um, I think uh, that Nigel brought up the, uh, the whole sort of polarity management. Um, uh, that was an interesting connection, I thought, and one that bears further investigation. Uh, that's more about how you uh, how you think about those sorts of things that you you can't do the separate parts of them in a linear at the same time. So whether it's breathing, you know, you're either breathing in or you're breathing out, or if you're talking about a liminal process you're at one stage of it at a time you can't be in the whole thing at a time um but you move through these um cycles and rhythms and well of course they're they're not rhythms to be taken for granted the liminal as opposed to the sort of more regular rhythms that we have but um that was very helpful um I personally, uh, another part of my journey with it was through the uh, uh, the work of Bruce Reed in the Grubb Institute, who I worked for for a while. And um, Nigel actually uh, 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 does an account of some of the journey we went through because we worked together uh, on the transforming lead clergy leadership um, which we later called liminal leadership, um, about how that sort of seemed to work very well with the um, other model that the the transforming experience framework that the that the Grub worked with. So that's both in the Crossing Thresholds book and in a book, uh, a recent book whose name I temporarily forget, uh, which writes up the Grub experience. Um, I'm sorry, I'll have to give you a, a name check for that at a later date. Um, but, um, and then I think, yeah, I, I really would highly recommend reading um, Winnicott's Playing and Reality if you're interested in how the developmental links in with it. And if you're interested in the, uh, taking it deeper into how the, the, that, connects with prayer then Anne Ulanov's books are really powerful um again my I suppose my reading has been majorly from within the Christian uh setting and, and Nigel and others would give you a lot more from beyond you know outside uh the specifically Christian view of it um but in terms of what's formed me, uh, it, it's it's more those things. Maybe uh, he doesn't use the words very much, but Bill Countryman's book uh, on on priesthood, which is uh, there, and I can't quite see. 
what's it's called it's something like it's got borders in the in in it that that's that's pretty good as well but um i i'm now uh looking to approach it from a different tack altogether so i'm trying to write a bestiary and and looking at some of the uh, both the uh, sort of legendary uh, animals and their symbolism and actual ones and theirs as a uh, from uh, a spiritual perspective uh, it's a but it is really another another way to the uh, liminal thank you for that I, I always enjoy asking that question because again some of the answers are the same but then there's always a lot of different uh resources that uh people pull from and things i'll definitely be checking out especially uh winnicott um I'm very interested in uh, his work um you kind of led to my next question of terms of what's next for you you mentioned the uh the book you're writing uh the, on vestry uh what what else is next for you in terms of uh scholarly work ministerial work uh the banality uh or hope to do within the next few years well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to see quite how <laughs> writing a bestiary and draw and getting the the pictures and paintings to go with it fits exactly with my my ministerial work is very much focused on how to help uh, two churches become sustainable uh, in the current climate, and so. It's taking me in one of them to explore social enterprise and different models of, you know, uh, and to be quite fo focused on much more um, outward and applied things, whether it's to do with housing or migration or whatever. But I think um, I think they they do join up somewhere and. Um, and as I said, maybe the most, and as maybe you pulled out of me with your questions, the the fact that nearly everyone here has has been on some, or is still on some kind of a a journey, and the the sort of migration thing, and the um, and how you build a city that in some way echoes the city of God is is. Uh, is a profoundly liminal question and how a place like this on the margins could potentially become a place of transformation and prophecy. So I'll stick around for a while and see how it works out. Sounds great. Rosie, how can others connect with you uh, and the work you're doing? Uh, well, they can um, come to our churches website which is um just coming out of <laughs> deep dysfunction at the moment and uh, uh and find our contacts through that and um i'm trying to revive a a blog with more up-to-date stories in that as well so that's one way and uh you're always welcome to visit i would uh love to visit and i would love to get over to the uk visit uh and see the work you're doing in bradford and uh rosie uh nigel can take you to hull i would love that i know he's a big whole city fan so i you know he could I, uh, visit uh hull visit bradford yeah. and uh, really get uh, some good experiences and you could go on to ilkley moor and have a have another kind of liminal experience up there i'm sorry i'm just disrupting you all the time now <laughs> <laughs> well rosie i want to thank you for such a wonderful insightful conversation when i when i do these uh never quite know where we're going to go and i just thought that the things we talked about today were so important uh so um informative for me uh for my own spiritual understanding and uh, always gives me another perspective to understand liminality. So I want to thank you that and uh, for the time you spent with me today. 
And thank you, Jonathan. It's been really stimulating for me as well. So I look forward to seeing what you write about um, interdependence and what it gets out of me about Commonwealth. <laughs> Absolutely. It's on my list of things to do now. I think I will uh, be thinking about that for a while. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Jonathan. My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org.